and welcome back everyone to another edition of CRE Next. Work out loud. My name is Mel Giannone. I'm a commercial real estate broker in the greater Toronto area, specializing in the exclusive representation of tenant occupiers and owner investors of commercial property. In today's episode, we're taking a look at the first half performance of real estate in 2020 and giving you our take on what to expect next for the greater Toronto area. On July 22nd, the provincial government unofficially declared the state of emergency as over. As most of Ontario moved into stage three of reopening, many of the people we met through social media, customers, and clients alike who saw our previous video had reached out with questions about the potential looming economic cliff on the horizon. Canadian households saw the largest single quarter decline of net worth in a decade the biggest since the third quarter of 2008. On an adjusted basis, it wiped out almost a full year's worth of gains. Perhaps today's government protective policy and financial support may be hiding the true impact of the pandemic on the economy. What happens when the support is ultimately retracted? Can the Canadian economy stand on its own independently? We are at an important point of inflection for our country do we recover or do we slide into deep recession? Maybe you too are seeking clarity on these issues and answers to this question. Well, you came to the right place. In today's episode, we're gonna break it all down into four parts to help you, one, assess the strength of the economy, two, measure the market risks ahead, three, learn lessons from the market's performance in the four food groups of commercial real estate, plus, We'll add a separate bonus section on the residential real estate market. And finally, four, we'll wrap it all up with our real estate outlook and insights for the balance of 2020 so that you can carve out a confident real estate strategy for your company and for yourself. Now, if you're ready, we're going to run the numbers post Q2 just for you. Here we go. Hi, this is Mel from CRE Next. Work Out Loud brought to you by Paramount Real Estate Properties, specialists in occupancy and investment solutions in the Toronto West Market. And if you're new to the channel, we share helpful insights on the current real estate market so that you can make better business decisions for your company and for yourself. So if you play a role in shaping real estate strategy for your team or are looking to invest in commercial real estate, make sure to subscribe, share, and tap the notification bell so that you don't miss any new content as soon as it's released. Well, it's the dog days of summer and we've officially made it through to stage three. The economic situation caused by the pandemic has raised concerns over whether Canadians and companies are strong enough to survive on their own this coming fall and winter without government support. The insight I'm about to share will provide you with the confidence to act on your real estate goals for the remainder of 2020, a framework for devising a strategy to make you money, saving you time, and avoiding needless frustration. As on the date of taping this episode, we witnessed a substantial turnaround since broadening the opening of our communities in June and July of 2020. 
Across most national economic leading indicators, we see signs of traction and positive momentum, mostly beating expectations. Dare I say, could it be the start of what looks to be like a V-shaped recovery? Let's not draw on that conclusion just yet. Here's a rundown of the numbers. After a deep contraction in February to April, real GDP, which sits at just under $2 trillion Canadian, grew in May and June as 19 of the 20 industrial sectors advanced, the largest monthly increase since 1961, led by gains in construction, manufacturing, and retail trade. Canada's economy has already recovered over 43% of the COVID-19 shock, and it only took three months to achieve this. Let's talk real estate. Overall construction rose in May, contributing to the largest monthly increase since January 1961. That's a steep bounce back, while June recorded a further 9.4%, bringing activity to just about 4% below the pre-pandemic levels. Residential construction and non-residential construction, which includes commercial property, surpassed pre-pandemic levels. Real estate and leasing grew 1.5% in May and edged up further by 2.5% in June. The national value of building permits rose by 6.2% to $8.1 billion in June, a level comparable to pre-COVID scale. These impressive GDP numbers resulted in Canada now recovering 1.66 million of the 3 million jobs lost during the full shutdown between February and April. The Canadian unemployment rate keeps falling from peak unemployment back in May, which had climbed to 13.7%. Wow, what a comeback. Bravo, Canada. What a performance. Canada's big economic rebound in Q2 was truly surprising to most. All the data pouring in these last few weeks from StatsCan tells an interesting story for real estate. Prior to the start of the summer, we lost lower wage jobs, having an impact on the demand for condos and the rental housing market. By the end of the second quarter, employment gains into July were fastest in part-time work. That was good news for those concerned about lower income earners potentially defaulting on their debt. The answer is no, not likely. They're going back to work, albeit at a slower pace than desired. This bounce back in job security tapered the decline in demand for July's rental housing market and promoted the sale of townhomes and semi-detached homes. May and June also saw higher paying jobs recover 96.7% of pre-COVID employment levels. These were jobs performed by the more highly educated workforce that could be preserved by working remotely. Typically, they were at the executive level. These jobs preserved at higher income levels had an indirect impact on elevating the sales volume and the average sales price of existing homes in June and July. The housing market, too, had a steep rebound. Ontario's, along with Toronto's employment, reached 89% of pre-COVID levels of February, important for buyer confidence, setting records for the GTA in existing home sales in June and July. By the end of July, the Millennials and the Gen Xers, this core labor force age group between 25 and 54, had been least affected by the shutdown, recovering within six percentage points of pre-COVID levels. The successful rebound by these two groups will ultimately propel the success of the housing market across most housing types for the next decade. Employment among baby boomers recovered 
impacting the rural and cottage markets in June and July. There was good news for the overall retail trade sector, which grew 22.3% in June. Vehicle and part sales bounced back, recovering almost 70% year-over-year volumes in passenger vehicle sales. When coupled with truck sales, that number jumps up by another 10%. Online spending held strong as Canadians continue to embrace remote buying. Retail e-commerce sales reached a record $3.9 billion in May, a 99.3% increase over February, and 110% year-over-year. Credit card spending in July resembled volume levels of a year ago. The threat of deflation was eliminated as the CPE edged higher in June, and then again in July. Overall inflation remained stable but growing as the velocity of money trading hands sped up slightly from a factor of 1.13 times rollover in May to 1.25 in June. As a result, the pricing environment still undershoots well below the Bank of Canada's target of 2% for the remainder of 2020, which will allow the Bank of Canada free to leave interest rates exceptionally low into 2021 and keep affordability for most products in line with the recovery. The takeaway from all this, the economic rebound began in May and picked up steam in June. July and August amid easing lockdowns. While that's certainly welcome news, it will be expected that marginal gains going forward will be harder to come by in the months to follow. As part of that strong demand may have been driven by pent up demand over the spring and summer months. It may not necessarily become a V-shaped recovery after September, but one thing is for certain, one thing is for certain, barring any major second infectious wave, Canada is potentially on a better trajectory in the near term compared to some other countries, namely the U.S. As a real estate strategist, now is an ideal time to consider taking advantage of historically low interest rates towards selective real estate opportunities and taking comfort in the slow, manageable, predictable and affordable pace of growth for most economic sectors. If you're looking to purchase an existing downtown condo as your principal residence, now might be the right time to capitalize on the oversupply in most desirable locations. If you're looking to trade up from renting an apartment, now might be the right time to negotiate an affordable deal on a townhome in the suburbs. And if you're seeking to expand your commercial property portfolio, now is a great time to prepare for opportunities surely coming over the next few quarters. If you're not already under contract with another agent, give me a call. Let's look at some property. How bad are the risks for delinquencies and insolvencies going to be over the next six months? The COVID-19 outbreak has been the most urgent challenge Canada has faced since coming out of the Great Recession in 2008. Very quickly, since declaring nationwide emergencies, all levels of government, the Bank of Canada, the CMHC, credit card companies, and Canadian charter banks and credit unions have all scrambled to provide some relief. The idea behind all these programs was to provide liquidity in the markets to buy time until jobs returned. 
During that time, Canadians would be freed up to concentrate on spending for essentials and indirectly keep the economy going through their purchases without having to worry about settling debts. It has worked in the short term. The recent rebound in Canada's economy proves it. However, many doubt as government programs along with mortgage and tax deferral deadlines are quickly approaching their end dates by the fourth quarter. Approximately 500,000 mortgage deferrals are set to expire in October and another 221,000 in November. However, since it takes about 90 days to officially fall into arrears, we won't see problems surface until the start of the new year 2021. There is a fear of weakness in the labor market outlasting the duration of government support measures. In fact, the weekly reports by Indeed Hiring Lab suggest the pace of new job postings has relatively slowed in its momentum since April. Many of the jobs gained back were for lower wages, hourly paid employment, and the average number of hours per week that Canadians worked in June was 33.8. So, what will the Government of Canada do to calm those labour market fears? What will the Bank of Canada do next to strengthen employment? Nothing. They're doing a good job up until now. They'll keep the status quo. We extend these programs indefinitely for now, possibly into 2021, morph them into some other form of EI-type benefit, and have the Bank of Canada continue with its monetary policy until 2% inflation is reached. Yes, it's true, kicking the can down the road is not a long-term solution, but for now, it moves us away from the economic cliff. Ultimately, what matters most when it comes to default is people having a job, having their incomes, what the programs are doing is buying time for that process to unfold, and it's working. The Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy filed data that revealed a record decline in Canadian consumer and business insolvencies in Q2 2020. According to Equifax and the CMHC, any increases in delinquencies would more likely rise from credit card and auto loans rather than mortgage debt. In fact, most lenders have been seeing mortgage deferral numbers across Canada drop and feel the vast majority of deferrals will end with borrowers returning to their regularly scheduled payments. This is probably why the banks are still lending competitively into this current summer housing market. Of average Canadian household debt, 29% were on credit cards, 28% on mortgages, 17% on personal loans and 16% on utilities. Further reassuring is a most recent report from TransUnion declaring Canadian credit card balances dropped 13.7% in Q2 2020 as consumers postponed such big, big ticket purchases as vacations. Overall, consumer non-mortgage delinquency rates have declined by 4.2% with the help of government support programs and payment deferrals. TransUnion's Financial Hardship Survey indicates that consumers are planning for the inevitable termination of financial accommodation programs like deferrals. This is great news for consumer and investor confidence moving forward into the balance of 2020. It would appear 
the government stimulus has slowed the number of delinquencies and insolvencies by providing some short-term relief, putting more cash in people's pockets than is actually needed, and in the accounts of businesses to weather most of the storm. Having said that, yes, there were less declared insolvencies reported over the first quarter, but there were more filings for insolvency in May and June as well, as we started coming out from the shutdown. There is often a delay between when people start to recognize the severity of their debt problems and when they actually take action. And even then, it would take about 90 days for non-payment for a loan to become delinquent. As we speak about the potential upcoming period for defaults in Canada, the key takeaway we should note here is expect slightly higher delinquency and insolvency numbers to surface by the end of the first quarter of next year, but not to an unmanageable degree. It would be reasonable to expect Toronto and Vancouver to be impacted by more bankruptcies and insolvency proposals than the rest of Canada. Not to fear, the CMHC has already prepared a default management playbook to help lenders help borrowers when government programs ultimately wind down. According to Equifax, younger people, mainly the millennials, mostly opted into these programs in contrast to older Gen Xers and baby boomers. Again, not to fear, Millennials stood out as being more cautious about their personal finances during quarantine, less susceptible to spending temptations brought on from a scarcity mindset driving most other consumers. It is important to remember employment in July for that core labor force group aged 25 to 54 recovered to almost near pre-COVID levels and suffered the least throughout the lockdown. That's great news for suppressing any perceived future market risks. Regarding the economic cliff, the takeaway is this. One, we're not going to fall over the cliff. It's more like stepping off a small ledge. We're not going into a deep depression or a long, deep recession. In my sole opinion, we're taking a step back from it. The economy should start a sustained upswing between April and September of next year. Until then, we'll have some good stretches and periods of disappointing news as the economy staggers and stutters between quarters. But not to worry because the federal government is committed in essence to backstopping most of the risk with a wide safety net made of extended programs at least until the end of the year, if not longer into Q1 of next year. They won't risk reversing all the progress made to this point, especially in real estate and construction, which accounted for over 20% of the GDP in June. Two, bankruptcies and delinquencies for both consumers and businesses will be minimized by extending government support programs. CERB payments were two times what was needed by the end of May, more than enough. There are those still collecting cash under the table while still receiving CERB, so there is extra money available out there to pay down debt. Not for everyone, but for some. Mortgage deferrals and equity takeout refinancing for commercial mortgages have been allowing extra money to flow into people's pockets that could help curb the volume for delinquencies. The Bank of Canada is committing 
to a slow, precise surgical approach to getting us back towards a 2% inflation target scheduled for later in 2021. They are signaling rates to remain at a quarter point until the end of next year, and they are buying up long-term debt now to keep inflation low for the very longest of times. Great news for keeping overall borrowing costs at historically low levels over the next 12 months. Three, employment numbers among the core labor force group is very close to bouncing back to pre-COVID levels. This is very important to note as they would have been the group most susceptible to bankruptcies and insolvencies. Instead, this group, most importantly the millennials, will be the driving force behind real estate decisions across all asset classes for the next decade. As investors in business and real estate, we simply need to follow this group age out through the next stages of their lives, entering the established career phase, early stages of marriage, and starting a family, all having impacts on the style, location, and future prices of property. So in closing, this period of time doesn't signal great uncertainty. It proposes a window of great opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a lifting economy this fall and winter for those real estate investors who are cautiously selective in finding the right property within the right asset class for the right price. Although you might not receive the greatest cash flow from property over these next few years, you will most likely benefit from the great appreciation and values for your real estate assets over the next decade. Supply in much of the different asset classes are still limited and completion of new construction projects will remain delayed for some time. So if you're not already under contract again with an agent, give me a call. Let's look at your strategy and let's buy some solid real estate assets in line with your corporate or personal goals. We are in the third quarter of the year of the great lockdown. It would seem we are coming out from the economic doom and gloom supported by encouraging data over the last few months. It's been an extraordinary six months. The sudden stop and resurgence of economic activity has been unprecedented. Through all this, stress in the financial markets have remained at a level we would typically experience in a recession. All this encouraging news should have a positive effect on real estate and real estate debt and investment markets going forward. The Canadian government has been providing stimulus targeted for the near term to help the economy get back on its feet. Going forward, our government will likely finance fiscal spending by issuing longer term bonds, thereby locking in today's historically low interest rates. We can see the Bank of Canada pivot towards buying much of that debt putting downward pressure on long-term yields and compressing spreads related to risk. Until now, lenders had been pricing more risk into their financing for real estate, taking a conservative approach to underwriting property, focusing on a loan-to-value and cost-based analysis. Also, they've been mitigating their risk by focusing only on the most promising of asset classes and being selective with whom they engage business with, the accomplished borrowers who have demonstrated a track record of past success and have the means to pay back debt. That approach 
might be relaxed a little bit going forward. We are definitely experiencing less resistance from lenders for opportunities priced below 50 million, and even more participation at this time below the $10 million level. On the flip side, investors have been sitting on the sidelines due to the uncertainty, lack of financing metrics, lack of deal comparables, and lack of clarity on cash flows to guide them in differentiating good deals from bad. We had experienced a shift in mindset from investors during the lockdown, a defensive strategy relying less on rental growth and more on strong tenant covenant and development potential. We are now starting to see signs of activity in the water, with investors circling for opportunities, smelling for a deal to be had at great discounts, but distressed asset sales have not yet materialized in great number. Would-be sellers aren't having any of that. They've chosen to keep their assets off the market for as long as they can afford to, for the very same reasons that buyers were reluctant to jump in. Uncertainty. Owners are reluctant to take a hit and prefer to ride out this uncertainty. As a result, scarcity of product persists in most asset classes as banks have been encouraged to sit down with clients and consider refinancing properties instead of adding pressure towards selling. To summarize the investment market over the first half of the year, overall investment activity was put on pause as both buyers and sellers focused on the ongoing management and capital improvement of their existing assets. The group of transactions that closed most likely had been placed under contract pre-COVID, resulting in lower transaction volumes thereafter compared to a year ago, but still only down by about 22%, or $7.9 billion. Today, interest in the most coveted assets increase with economic confidence. Currently, that focus from both investors and landlords is on sheds and beds, industrial properties, and multifamily apartments. In their eyes, market fundamentals are getting better, and so investors are starting to come back. However, we won't experience substantial pickup in activity until the spring and summer months of 2021. As a real estate strategist, for the balance of the year, you should remain diligent and possess a cautious optimism in your approach to market opportunities as we continue to face challenges from a pending second wave of infections, slight rise in loan losses, threatening tariffs and trade tensions, a tumultuous election south of the border affecting North American monetary policy and awaiting the recovery of our biggest trading partner, the USA. There will be a slow and gradual recovery to the investment market as the gaps between buyer bids on price and seller asks for value narrows with more available information. The time needed to scrutinize an opportunity and perform due diligence will decrease over time. All these factors noted here will affect lending practices, overall liquidity in the economy, and cap rate expectations for each asset class. Capitalization rate expectations have shifted upwards amidst concerns over the pandemic, but by the end of Q2, they had come back down, and cap rates for the best-in-class assets have remained relatively unchanged. 
Here are examples of current overall cap rate ranges in the GTA across different asset classes. You'll notice they haven't changed by a large degree since pre-COVID. On average, across the four asset classes, retail, industrial, office, and multifamily, cap rates hover around 4.4%. That's brought to us by the Altus Group. What is important to note is that the cost of borrowing is dropping at historical lows alongside the widening risk spread or gap between the 10-year Government of Canada bond yield and cap rate expectations. At a time, I feel in my sole opinion that the risk associated with most asset classes is diminishing over time as we recover from the pandemic. Look for investment trading velocity to increase and cap rates to slightly compress once again over the next 24 months. According to recent numbers presented by the Altus Group and supported by a survey from RealPAC, most risks from delinquencies are declining from their peaks in May. In both apartments and retail, tenants continue to request rental deferment periods beyond the two to four months originally agreed to by landlords. Most landlords in the commercial market are looking at these requests on a case-to-case -case basis requesting financial reviews to substantiate requests from those tenants. Let's rank the strength of each of these four food groups of commercial real estate. And as a bonus, we'll discuss what's going on in the resilient residential market. The GTA has truly benefited from favorable economic factors, including good rental growth, a rapid demand from logistics, a growing need from e-commerce, more storage needs related to just-in-case inventory, and supply constraints nationally for industrial space at approximately 3% availability levels. The result for the first half of the year revealed that over $2.5 billion was invested in industrial assets in Canada, with the GTA accounting for about 85% of the approximately 1.7 billion in Q2 sales, making it very competitive as an investor. But even though it's expensive, average prices increasing at about 10% year over year in between the $225 to $230 per square foot range, it will continue to provide safe and stable returns into the next few years, as the shift from brick and mortar retail to e-commerce is expected to continue prompting investment in warehouse space. And fulfillment centers will demand more storage to support increased online order volume or any need for stockpiling extra just-in-case inventory levels. Overall vacancy in the GTA has risen slightly but only to approximately 2%, largely due to the return of space from small bay users, typically occupying between 20,000 square feet to 50,000 square feet, who tend to be small to medium-sized businesses hit hardest by the pandemic. Of all new construction supply to the market, over 60% has been so spoken for and no longer available. The GTA's average net asking rate still increased for the 13th consecutive quarter to a record high of over $9.70 per square foot, a testament to the strength of this asset class. Here is the bottom line. If you're a tenant, 
you can expect negotiations with your landlord to be a little rigid. However, most landlords would be open to negotiating longer lease terms and creative concessions in exchange for keeping up their healthy rental face rates. As an investor, take advantage of any opportunities coming available in the small base segment as the need for quick last mile delivery of product will assure the long-term returns from depots spread across the perimeter of the central business district. The second best of all asset classes, again, in my sole opinion, is multifamily properties. This darling asset class attracted more investment capital across Canada than any other product type at approximately $3.4 billion for the first half of this year, shy of 2019's record-breaking $3.8 billion. At the halfway point of the year, there was approximately $900 million of that money in GTA sales across all multifamily, down 17% of its volume year over year. Transaction volumes in the Greater Toronto Area for purpose-built rental apartment buildings specifically are down closer to 7% year over year. That's much better. Most of the deals that did close had roots in Q2 starting pre-COVID. Although activity is down, price per, square, uh, price per unit continues to climb 13%, having reached approximately $373,000 per suite in Q2, depending on age, location, and class of building. The sector has a counter-cyclical nature in times of a recession, which makes it a hedge against risk to some extent. Encouraging rent collection figures to date have made this asset class an appealing option for investors experiencing only about 6% delinquency rate on collections. Vacancy has risen slightly in 2020, but still remains tight at approximately 1.8% in the GTA. The first half of the year saw the average monthly rent for existing stock of purpose-built apartments across the GTA rise to just over $2,000 per month. Newer completed projects are fetching closer to $2,500 per month. GTA rental rates per square foot continue to float at around $3.22, above the national average of $2.20 per square foot. The national average for purpose-built apartments itself had increased in July by 12% year over year. That's great news for builders and investors in new purpose-built apartments. The reversal of rent control measures in this category only makes conditions better for increasing the national housing supply for Canadians and assuring healthy, stable returns for investors well into the distant future. In contrast, average monthly rents for existing stock across all property types in the GTA declined in July. Most concerning, Overall rents for existing stock of condominiums across the GTA suffered the most in July, declining to about $2,274, about $260 per month less than last year, worse than the national average. New rental listings for condominiums climbed to 42% year over year in July, mainly due to the historically low interest rate levels influencing a flight to quality for those who could afford to purchase a home over renting. Ultimately, the increase in choice led to more negotiating power for renters, putting downward pressure on rents 
and achieving concessions such as a one-month free rental period. As we speak about the rental apartment category across all types, we find condominium rents, which are more sensitive to market disruption, saw an oversupply and availability as most high-rise buildings, predominantly owned by investors, not the occupiers, pivoted away from once profitable short-term Airbnb rentals to long-term rental housing, which softened the overall rental market. Bottom line, purpose-built apartment buildings in the GTA will outperform rents for individual condominium apartment investments in the near short term. While low-rise, multi-residential, those duplexes and triplexes or low two to three-story buildings made up predominantly of longer-term renters will perform best into 2021 over the high-rise towers. The overall national picture for this asset class will show flat or slight declines in rents over the next two quarters or so, while downtown Toronto will perform worse than the suburbs. The uncertainty for this sector will be influenced by the following factors, all leading to further availability and downward pressure on rental rates. That is why I rank the multifamily asset class second best behind industrial and condominium investments lower still in ranking for now. So here are your key takeaways for the rental apartment market. If you're currently an apartment renter, note that the market is experiencing a temporary oversupply of apartment condo listings. So this may be an opportunity to trade up to owning a larger existing condo with a bigger kitchen, accommodating more frequent at-home meals, and an office den for two as most couples work remotely. Conversely, if you're a renter in a B-class building, you may take advantage of the slightly higher vacancy in A-class product, a flight to quality towards a bigger space in a better managed building that has better health and safety protocols located in a more desirable neighborhood and will offer one month in free rent. If you're a small apartment investor, look to low-rise multi-residential for long-term stable returns, less affected by the volatility in this current environment. If you are a large investor seeking opportunities in multi-family purpose-built apartment buildings, interest rates are low and favorable, as support from banks and the CMHC is available, in line with the national housing strategy. Note that financing and due diligence in this economic environment will take longer. Expectations on cap rates vary with proximity to the urban core between 3.25% to 4.5%, lower at center ice locations in the downtown core, while the risk for C-class properties in C-class locations will push cap rates up. Issues facing investors will be mainly defensive in strategy, appraising the value of opportunities given the lack of sales comparables. Bill 184 regarding the policies on tenant evictions and the lag time for processing delinquencies. Quality of building management towards the enforcement of masks, waivers for use of building amenities, on-site security and stepped up sanitation programs.
Strength of rent rolls, length of terms, timing out of rental contract expiries, all important. Holding rents firm over the next six months may be difficult with current downward pressures on rental rates caused by the temporary increase in vacancy. It can take up to two years to get back up to the pre-COVID levels if the choice is made to lower rents now. The quality of your res resident profiles are important. Diversity, the mix balance, and the convertibility of existing suites will all have a, a factor and an influence as to which buildings are good to buy and which are those to stay away from. So take heed. Just as many categories before it had been disrupted by technology, most notably the retail sector, the office sector is now undergoing an accelerated evolution brought on by the COVID crisis. Remote working is now here to stay in one form or another, and the guaranteed growth of virtual companies aided by cloud technology will change the use of traditional office space over this next de decade. Regarding the return to work, there could be a split in attitude between age groups. Older Gen Xers and Boomers might long for the return to personal interaction with colleagues in a traditional office setting. However, younger millennials may make a case against returning back to the office. Until the office workplace offers employees more than their home offers in terms of accessibility, well-being, and security, a portion of that labor force will be reluctant to head back. Employers themselves may fear potential litigation brought forward by visitors or workers contracting COVID within their place of employment. Employers will have to demonstrate enough duty of care was taken to assure an ongoing COVID-free environment. As office reopenings are slowly rolled out across Canada, many companies have paused in bringing back their office workforce and may not complete the full return until sometime in 2021 as they evaluate their current and future space needs. As a result, vacancy is trending up more so in expensive downtown markets than the cheaper suburbs. This is mainly due to the rise in subleases introduced in Q2, currently at levels at around 27%. Tenants are attempting to mitigate occupancy costs by exercising their sublease option, early termination option, or paying an upfront termination penalty of up to one year's gross rent, while others are choosing to ride out the remaining obligation or opting for a short-term office renewal so as to buy time until they determine the right size of their operations for future economic conditions in this new normal. These strategies could potentially lead to reduced office density or the permanent increase in a remote workforce, both of which will decrease leasing activity, shorten lease terms, increase vacancy, and put downward pressure on lease rates and net effective rents for landlords. Traditional buyers of office properties also adopted a wait-and-see attitude because of the uncertainty surrounding office demand and rental growth. Recent news regarding portions of the Regis Business Center portfolio in the U.S. filing for Chapter 11 and the resurfacing fear of the WeWork concept recurringly needing more funding from its investors makes many large landlords nervous as these two office concepts occupy a large portion of space across many cities in Canada. The first half, office sales are down. 
67% year over year, around $630 million. That said, downtown Toronto still remains the tightest downtown office market in North America at less than 3% of an availability rate, with subleases accounting for approximately a quarter of that total. Investors should watch carefully as the level of sublease space increases and could be an early indicator of how healthy this asset class will be moving forward in the next decade. It would be reasonable to anticipate that in response to COVID-19, the supply of downtown Class A sublease space will maintain levels over 25% throughout 2021. For now, rental rates remain strong as landlords hold firm despite a slowdown in leasing activity. It's expected that it would take more than 12 months for Toronto's leasing activity to return to that of the past five years. Average direct asking rents from landlords have increased in Toronto by approximately 11% year over year, while the GTA suburban markets have been relatively flat. Pre-leasing for new buildings under construction in Toronto remains very strong, although about a fifth of the tenants will be delayed from moving on time due to the lockdown. Ultimately though, we should expect a slight decline in rent as project completions intensifies in 2021, adding more vacancy for now low in lower class buildings needing to be backfilled from tenants leaving to pursue a flight to quality. As we speak about the office market asset class in this current economic environment, your key takeaways are this. As a tenant at this point in the year, you may still be awarded some rent, deferment, not abatement from your landlords, typically on a case-by-case -case basis only. Those rare companies who are experiencing unexpected growth from this pandemic, leverage this time to negotiate hard on a great lease rate in these softer market conditions. Secure landlord-funded capital inducements, extraordinary rental concessions, and future sublease, assignment, or early termination options built in in exchange for a commitment to a longer lease term. Otherwise, as for most tenants not sure about future prospects, play safe and renew for a year or two before rates resume their climb again for the long term. For investors, opportunities will come less from rental growth and more so from the redevelopment, repurposing, or conversion of older buildings located near desirable amenities, desirable locations possessing adequate parking ratios, no less than four per thousand, next to public transit or accessible to major highways leading in and out of downtown. Watch the current migration of homeowners heading into the suburbs over the last few months, specifically towards the Durham region, Whitby, Ajax, Pickering, Oshawa, and Clarington. Most employers will want to be close to the best talent and preserve their current base of skilled employees who may have moved there. Be wary of underwriting property using valuations on an only projected rental cash flow basis. At this time, a building filled with long-term leases from tenants with strong covenants will be worth more than those properties presenting the potential lift in rents based on weaker tenants with short-term commitments. If you plan to own an office property, be aware of that 905 migration in the residential market. While you're there looking at property, focus on the low-rise buildings, no more than six to seven stories, 
or ground-level flex office buildings. Buildings with upgradable HVAC systems and technologies already in place to be upgraded. Aim to cap your short-term tenancies, those between one to four years, at no more than 20% of your entire rent rolls. And negotiate a slight discount in net rental rates for prospective tenants coming to you as an incentive for committing to stable long-term leases. And premiums should be placed on the flexibility of short-term leases. After rebounding in May by 21%, Canadian retail sales rose by another 24% in June, surpassing pre-pandemic levels by 1.3% in all provinces except Ontario and British Columbia. E-commerce sales in Canada are up 120% over 2019. It remains to be seen if this wave of activity was simply pent-up demand from being locked down for so long, rebound spending from having extra CERB money, or shopping for anticipated discounts under great weather conditions. Most likely these levels will taper off as we head back to work, school, and take stock of our finances in September, October, and November as government support programs wind down. Before COVID, the retail sector had already been undergoing a transformation brought on by technology. Since the great lockdown, this asset class has felt the impact of the pandemic the most. With massive job losses, rent deferrals, bankruptcies and insolvencies, and a heavy reliance on government support. This will get worse for retail real estate before it gets better as the colder fall-winter months will take away the comfort of dining on patios, spacious shopping outdoors, and shift spending back online as people avoid the fear of not being able to properly physical distance within an enclosed mall setting. Retailers are carrying a huge overhead in their physical locations, and when sales dry up, many of them won't be able to hang on. Retail insolvency filings are rising and we won't see the end of it soon. There's more coming down the pipeline. Rent collection delinquencies still remain high for enclosed shopping centers at about 44%, and outdoor centers at approximately 37%. Retail landlords have used the SECRA, Canadian Emergency Commercial Real Estate Assistance Program, more than any other asset class with mixed results mostly on smaller independent retailers on a case-by-case -case basis. Prospects don't look promising for stores after this program winds down. Demand for retail property has declined significantly over the first half of 2020, the lowest consecutive two-quarter performance in over a decade. Most of the sales were valued at under $10 million, as most Traditional retail landlords are postponing any new acquisitions or developments to preserve capital. Any interest in retail property takes root in the potential to reinvent and diversify the asset into a combination of future mixed uses such as a hotel, office, apartment, or last mile fulfillment center. Those properties anchored by grocery, pharmacy, banking, home improvement, or other staple products and services will remain an attractive investment. As we speak about the retail asset class in this current economic environment, your key takeaways 
are this. If you are a retailer, more now than ever, you need to adopt an e-commerce platform, develop omni-channel distribution systems, and merge your real estate strategy between bricks and mortar stores with last mile delivery industrial fulfillment centers, also known as dark stores. If you are a medium-sized business, you need to consider qualifying for some cheap money loans to shore up any weakness in your concept. Look to acquire other viable competitors that are struggling right now and expand your market share by filling the void in profitable niches left behind by your failing competition. If you are an investor, you need to consider making a better return in less time acquiring property in other asset classes. Only look to retail property with good underlying land value, flexible zoning, and an ability to convert for mixed uses. The smaller investor might want to shift focus towards old school in-town municipal street front property with retail on the ground floor, commercial office on the main levels, and apartments on the upper floors. This diversification will better provide a hedge against future market risks. There is no conspiracy to deny people from ever affording a home. However, there is extraordinary inflation in the housing market right now. Even with all the past foreign investment that pushed record activity in recent years. There are a number of market forces at work here that could unintentionally inflate a housing bubble while widening the economic disparity between Canadians that have versus those who have not. These are the unintended consequences of government and monetary policies designed to deter Canada away from a long-term economic crisis, not for handling a housing crisis. According to the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, the GTA housing market soared to a record highs in June and July, with a surge in activity for home resales surpassing pre-COVID levels. The July 2020 MLS Home Price Index, the HPI Composite Benchmark, was up 10% compared to July 2019. The overall average selling price was up 16.9% year over year to $943,710 across all home types. On a seasonally adjusted basis, the average selling price was up 5.5% compared to the month of June, and the volume of sales were up 49.5%. Canadian real estate prices have grown at nearly triple the pace of any G7 country since 2005. By the end of July, transaction volume marked the highest monthly sales figure on record going back more than 40 years. There were only just uh, 2.8 months of inventory on a national basis, the lowest reading on record. A number of Ontario markets shifted from months of inventory to weeks of inventory in July, the sales to new listings ratio rose to 73.9% nationally, the highest level since the early 2000s. Wow, what a snapback in activity for the residential market. So what happened? New listings normally rise during a downturn, 
but until now have been slow to come onto the market. Every recession during the post-war era has seen a meaningful decline in home construction, except this one. COVID was a great accelerator, causing buyers to speed up their real estate plans in a compressed 10-month sales year. With the exclusion of the lull in April and May, January and February were active months before coming to a halt at a time we would typically be heading into a robust spring season. Closed sales centers, fewer open houses, and a national lockdown forcing would-be buyers and sellers to obey stay-at-home messages from the government, all shifting pent-up demand into the summer months of June through September. As a result, the cyclical sales curve resembles the bell curve for COVID cases in Canada, with potentially only one extended selling season for 2020 instead of the two that we normally have, the big one in the spring and the small one typically in the fall. Those all describe the public's external issues facing the market. With fewer people traveling, spending less money on big ticket items, paying down debt and more concerned about their future health and quality of life, being in isolation had changed their view of what they wanted in their next home. New attitudes were being formed amongst most Canadians in reaction to news of the likelihood for future infectious waves occurring more frequently and regularly. Consequently, the reprioritization of needs transformed the typical compositions of sales in the residential market. A newfound importance was placed on owning a home, a desire for more personal and outdoor space. A home with a room for an office, all of which spurred on activity that otherwise would not have happened in a non-COVID world. Rather than moving out to the suburbs or the country in five to 10 years, we've all heard that from our friends. It was now time for people to address their internal issues and calm fears of missing out, FOMO. The flight to quality, it began with a turnaround in June during the gradual reopening between stage two and three. We experienced a surge in sales for the typically higher end of the market in detached homes and townhomes, mainly in the 905 area code, and specifically in the Durham region, which includes Pickering, Ajax, Whitby, Oshawa, and Clarington. This preference pivot between property types came at a time when sales prices for new condos hit an all-time high by July as just under, at just under a million dollars. That's a jump of 18.5% over the last 12 months. Juxtaposing this trend, resales for condo apartments at the lower end of the market declined year over year across the GTA. It was clear the most financially qualified were on the move up. Owning a larger new home in the suburbs was just as expensive as buying a new, smaller condo in the city. A point of indifference had been reached, so many people made the switch to freehold homes. The trend describes a flight to quality which saw sales volumes for freehold homes rise four times over attached condo apartments. For this reason, we witnessed the average sales price for all home types get massively skewed upwards by 16.9% year over year in July.
Although the numbers showed a rebound in condo apartment sales and semi-detached homes, alongside the continuing growing sales volume for detached and townhouses, once again the 905 area outsold the 416 in nearly every housing segment, while the 416 saw listings soar in the city by 45.52%, affirming a trend in migration to the less crowded suburbs where people could satisfy their basic needs while accommodating a slightly more affordable cost of living. Why is this exodus important to note for commercial investors? Well, because as employees migrate to the suburbs, employers will be influenced to transplant their operations closer within the 905 to secure their most talented skill workers. For employers and investors alike, watch the demographic shifts play out in the increase of sublease space for the downtown market and the decrease of direct space in the suburbs. Millennials between ages 24 to 39 sought out certainty, aging out from rental condos and apartments to start out to raise their family, attracted to homes with finished basements for children or a place for a home with an office. Gen Xers between 40 and 55 sought security, trading up to more spacious detached homes with a room for a pool for their existing growing family. And a portion of empty nester boomers between 56 and 76 sought refuge, taking an early retirement package or simply avoiding the volatility of the stock market and the big city by cashing out stocks and purchasing sound real estate investments in the form of a vacation type property or second home in recreational communities across cottage country. Of course, this is where the economic disparity comes into play. These life-changing opportunities were only afforded to those whose jobs were deemed essential or otherwise spared and secured during the uh, shutdown. The correlation between higher education and lower employment meant those highly educated, higher wage, salary paid earners, typically in a white collar role, were in positions to continue working remotely, not in fear of contracting the virus. The recession for high-income earners has nearly ended. While for those hourly paid, lower-wage earners in blue-collar employment, contract employment, or temporary positions, they were the hardest hit from the outset of this pandemic and most likely tethered to their physical place of work in order to get paid. Consequently, they were limited from participating in this transformation and left behind from the opportunities. The recession for them will linger on for the next 12 months at least. This is an inflection point, not only for the Canadian economy, but for demographic, social, and income classes. There is a split in the recovery. No V-shaped rebound for some, more like a K-shaped recovery for the blue-collar class. The split will most likely impact larger metropolitan centers across Canada more than the suburbs or rural areas. The split is important to note as the need for rental apartments over the long run will only increase in the big cities. It's not the Illuminati, it's simply market forces at work. 
With pent-up demand being pushed into the summer months and an accelerated urgency to make lifestyle changes, future demand was being pulled forward from the fall to avoid being affected by the following factors. All these factors would lead to our bubble growing today, albeit inflating temporarily or deflating over the long term remains to be seen depending on government and economic policy versus capitalistic market forces. Since March, the government and the Bank of Canada had been focused on putting out the fire that was a health care crisis leading to an economic crisis and potentially an insolvency crisis. In an effort to provide liquidity in the economy, the Bank of Canada had cut its benchmark overnight lending rate to a quarter point and the prime lending rate to 2.45%. All while this was being attended to, the flames eventually emerged from the housing market now on fire and fanned by free market forces. The government and the Bank of Canada know that real estate, rental, and leasing is the largest segment of the, Can of the Canadian economy at about 12.6%. And coupled with construction, they account for one-fifth of Canada's overall GDP. So it's important for Canada's economic recovery to promote the strength of these sectors. Lenders were encouraged to help borrowers at this time, preserve their wealth, and aid in growing it for their future. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which is a federal crown corporation accountable to the government of Canada, did their part in trying to curb any extraordinary demand risk and future delinquencies by introducing more stringent stress test rules in July, pleading with banks not to expand credit to risky borrowers and enforce limitations on equity takeout refinancing. However, independent mortgage insurers, accountable to their shareholders, were ready to step in where the CMHC wouldn't. Banks, too, are beholden to their shareholders to seek out profitability over accountability to any government agency. So we have a few contradicting, opposing strategies at work. Government support programs and agency restrictions to avoid an economic cliff versus private market forces seeking to capitalize on the Bank of Canada's strategy to purposely keep interest rates low until 2023. It's not a conspiracy, it's just the way the market forces work. Evan Sedell, the current CEO of the CMHC, had penned a letter addressed to the banking community warning of aggressive selling practices leading to consumers overextending themselves in debt. The CMHC is concerned about Canadians adopting a false sense of security in this snapback residential economy, while ignoring the wave of potential delinquencies on the horizon when government support programs wind down. It is forecasted the true effects from the conclusion of any mortgage deferral periods will surface in early 2021. It is also expected that this inflated real estate market will lose air once a flood of listings entered the market all at once this fall and winter in advance of most deferral deadlines. Demand will subside. Rising inventory will affect longer selling times, which will run out the clock for most attempting to avoid default ahead of their deadlines. The big takeaway from all this Risk in the residential market won't come for the most qualified buyers trading up their prime residence. 
or current homeowners taking advantage of the lower interest rates to refinance their current debt, which is what is happening for the most part. Rather, it will come from speculative investors over leveraging their financing. Investors are more likely to sell under pressure than homeowners who prefer to preserve ownership at all costs in an effort to maintain their current lifestyle for themselves and their families. We are most like, likely seeing this play out in the high-rise condo market for downtown Toronto, where a lot of the owners are investors, not occupiers of their space. As well, we should consider a large segment of these owners are foreign investors, not affecting the overall level of risk for delinquencies and defaults anticipated for Canadians. However, the contribution from this segment towards any predicted panic selling from these investors would bring down prices and therefore affect the level of recovery for delinquent mortgagees. Albeit small in number, amateur speculators will get caught with listings well after their mortgage deferral period ends. The current level of returning renters and buyers are not enough to fill much of that void in vacancy right now and immigration, students along with non-resident workers will remain relatively absent until the August 31st travel restriction is lifted, if it's not extended. As we head into the fall, it is most likely that consumers will shift more of their focus towards other, more pressing concerns like returning to work, returning their children to school, and returning to the payment of debts before deadlines arrive it would be reasonable to expect an increase in the number of listings and the number of days that listings sit on the market will grow going forward until the next spring market of 2021. Banks will rein in their aggressive lending and credit expansion will slow until that next spring market. So in my sole opinion, I don't see the risk of a bubble getting much bigger until that time when banks begin to compete for mortgage business again. The coming five months of November through March of next year would be an opportune time for small real estate investors, the shrewd ones, the smart ones, to seek cash-flowing tenanted homes, duplexes, and triplexes. Timing for these purchases would most likely land at the weakest point of the season for competing purchases as well, Timing would coincide with the predicted period in which defaults start coming on the market after their 90-day delinquency period lapses, which is after most mortgage deferral periods end in the fall of 2020. What to expect next? Immigration, foreign students, and non-resident worker applications have resumed processing online only as of July 1st, although the travel ban still prohibits anyone from entering Canada before August 31st. Anyone who had been approved prior to March 18th is eligible and will have to wait if they haven't already been here the whole time. It is reasonable to expect there will be pent up demand from people anxiously awaiting for an opportunity to move here, just as there was pent up demand growing during the lockdown in the real estate market. Once the floodgates open, there will be a surge of new renters and buyers restoring the balance that was once there pre-COVID.
It will be a great opportunity to rush back into the high-rise condo market at that point, just before the government makes a further announcement on immigration and lifting travel restrictions, most likely in line with the arrival of any mortgage deferral cliff. So stay vigilant. The great lockdown in the GTA is over. Not only has the state of emergency been lifted, the fog is lifting from the uncertainty of the real estate market. These past 100 plus days gave us a benchmark from which to measure future opportunities and the visibility needed to plan a strategy for the balance of the year. Yes, the second quarter was unprecedented. Canada experienced the deepest quarterly drop on record Annualized GDP sank 38.7% by the end of Q2, but that is all behind us now, and we're currently sitting only 6 percentage points lower than pre-COVID levels thanks to the rebounds found in May, June, and July. The narrative is changing right now as we come out from the bottom. These are the macroeconomic drivers to watch out for. One. Canada's economy is growing. It has recovered well over half of the pandemic losses since March. Two, employment is recovering. Over half of the jobs lost to COVID-19 have been recovered in three months. Three, cost of living is stable. The overall consumer price index is muted and inflation is negligible for 2020 and going into 2021. This second level here, government and monetary policies, watch out for points like number four, regarding the cost of borrowing money. The Bank of Canada will ensure historically low levels for the balance of 2020, heading into 2021 and possibly beyond. Number five, with regards to the government safety net, programs will continue past their deadlines in one form or another. The goal is to gradually wind down subsidies over a long time no shocks to the system. And six, risk to credit is being minimized as the federal government and the Bank of Canada will continue to backstop any risk by buying up bad debt. And keep an eye on these microeconomic drivers. Number seven, real estate investment. Currently, activity is coming off the pool deck and into the pool testing the waters. Don't be late, prepare yourself. Number eight, asset classes of choice. Sheds and beds, industrial and multifamily promises the most stability. Number nine, the flight to quality for those who can, who can qualify for loans and mortgages. Now might be the time to refinance your debt at cheaper rates, reduce your mortgage costs, utilize cheap money to, to strengthen your business, eliminate the inefficiencies, buy out your weakened competition, expand your market share. Utilize cheap money to acquire a home versus renting an apartment. Utilize cheap money to acquire a real estate investment property or second home. Avoid the volatility of the stock market. And point number 10, suburban migration. It's happening. So invest where the people are going to and not where they're leaving from. In advance of your competition, follow the aging out of millennials as a real estate strategist. And here's a bonus. Number 11 is not on here, 
but I'll give it to you. It's in regards to residential real estate and specifically apartment condominiums as investments. Revisit purchasing a discounted condo in the fall or winter months just before the government announces full-scale open immigration to resume and travel restrictions to be lifted. This will most likely happen sometime in the first quarter of 2021, in line for when the economic cliff for mortgage defaults is predicted to surface. Immigration is typically at its peak each year by the third quarter, so get in the position well before the fall. For real estate strategists, understanding these top 10 points covered under these three market dynamics will give you the visibility needed to help define true real estate opportunities and time investment decisions, both personally and for your business. Remember, recessions are typically brought on by fear in the marketplace, caused by the uncertainty of future events. Today, we shared with you supporting data that should eliminate most of that fear from this economic downturn and clear up some of that uncertainty that could cloud your judgment in navigating your real estate strategy. It's been mentioned many times over these last few months, but I think it's appropriate given the important inflection point we're in at this point in time. Warren Buffett had been quoted as saying that it is wise for investors to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. We've cited examples of both throughout this presentation. Going forward, in the spirit of Warren Buffett, you too can seize opportunities in the real estate market while others remain fearful over the next few years. As your advisor, I would encourage you to stay on top of real-time data, stay vigilant of the opportunities and predictions we made here together, and stay active in the market with me, Mel Giannone, your trusted source for occupancy and investment solutions in Toronto's West End commercial real estate market. Thanks for your time. I hope to hear from you soon. For real estate opportunities together, I can be reached by telephone at 905-567-5602, by email delivery to mel at paramountrealestate.ca, or communicating through the comments section if you're watching by video or listening via podcast. I invite you to come back and visit more episodes of CRE Next Work Out Loud, where we'll share even more helpful insights and thoughts with you on current real estate matters. Until then, stay well.